Alrighty, welcome to another episode of Constructed Resources. I'm your co-host, LSV, and here with me, my assistant co-host, Andrew Beckstrom. BK, what's going on? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting title. Um, let's just say that the sponsorship agreements that we have do not pay me like an assistant co-host. Yeah, it's more like an assistant to the regional co-host. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, but yes, uh, we're here. We're, we're in a week. What would you call this? Week one and a half of standard. It's been like Innistrad came out last yeah. week. So I guess it's actually literally a week. We, Innistrad came out a week from the day we're recording this, which is, of course, Thursday. So we, we've had our first full week of standard on Arena with Innistrad Midnight Hunt. So uh, a good place to start when we're talking about stuff. And uh we're going to be talking about threats and responses today, uh, which is something that uh, you're familiar with in our pattern of communication. <laughs> yes, it's always important to be ready for any threat that could be coming your way because sometimes you can you, it, that comes from an unexpected place and in a form well that you you'd prefer not to deal with, but that's the game. All right. Uh, before we get to our show, of course, we got to thank our sponsors, uh, ChannelFireball.com. And uh, Channel Fireball announced something really exciting today. If you go to MTGLasVegas.com, you can take a look. This is the first big paper magic event. It will be held in Las Vegas. There's going to be a 25K limited tournament, a 25K modern tournament, side events, you know, commander play. Vendors, tons of awesome stuff. And, uh, you know, it, with safety in mind, Channel Fireball is requiring all attendees wear masks and either be vaccinated and have a, you know, record of such or have a negative COVID test within the last 48 hours. So, really excited for this event. I, I think it's going to be awesome. I unfortunately won't be in attendance. I'll, uh, you know, if all goes according to plan, have a one month old by then. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just so cool seeing this back. And I'll certainly be watching with uh, bated breath from the sidelines. Yep, there's really nothing like paper magic. And if you've been missing a large paper magic gathering, it sounds like um, MTG or what's what's the name of the website, Luis, again for everybody? Uh, so th- this is a ma- an amount of preparation I would expect from an assistant co-host. Yeah, it's mtglasvegas.com. <laughs> Wait, I literally started off and was saying the right thing, but I wouldn't be so sure for the audience that I stopped myself instead of just powering through it with uncertainty and bravado for no reason. Um Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, of course, we also want to thank our other sponsor, uh, FTX. Uh, FTX is a trusted and regulated cryptocurrency uh, exchange. You can uh, buy and sell cryptocurrency or things like NFTs or any cryptocurrency derivatives. You go to FTX.us if you live in the U.S. or FTX.com if you live outside the U.S. And of course, BK and I are not uh, registered financial advisors. So, uh, you know, do your own research, figure out what you want to do, but know that you can use and trust FTX. They're uh, an awesome company and we're very happy to be sponsored by them. All yep. right. We got some decks of the week, and uh, one of them's a doozy. This is this is one I actually uh, I showed BK and, and let him gaze upon the kind of wonder that it is. Yeah, so you know, instead of talking about just one standard deck, obviously we're gonna there's lots of new stuff going on. Let's just talk about one wild deck. And anytime we could talk about legacy, it's a good time. And we would only do so if we had a really really cool deck to talk about. So let's talk about dwarf in dwarves in legacy. And so what this deck does is it takes advantage of Magda Brazen Outlaw, which you know obviously we're familiar with that at standard. It's ability where anytime one of your dwarves becomes tapped, you get a treasure. And then if you haven't seen in a while, Moth Dust Changeling, which is sort of a one mana one one changeling, and what it allows you to do is to tap an untapped creature to get to give uh, another creature flying this turn and so that combo 
combined with lots of other changelings, allows you to get lots and lots of treasures from your Magda. You can also find both of these pieces with Dwarven Recruiter. And then once we got lots of treasures, we can sack them to Magda to search up a Platinum Empyrean with that Sack 5 Treasures ability to find an artifact or dragon. Obviously, any dragon also counts as a chain. Any changeling is also a dragon, so you can find lots of your changelings, like your Unsettled Mariners and your Valiant Changelings. You could get Pyre of Heroes, which is the sort of the birthing pod in standard for creatures of the same type. And so ultimately what you could do with this deck is you get to just play with a lot of wacky stuff and then you get to a lot of changelings that can become dwarves and then use that to take advantage. And there's fun stuff too. Like anytime you've got a deck that can tutor up creatures and has lots of changelings, you can just throw in random like lords. And so this deck has got one copy of Feline Sovereign. And if you want to see a little bit more about this deck, Anurag Das uh, posted a video um about a, last week on channelfireball.com about legacy dwarves and this sort of wacky changeling combo. <laughs> it plays like Swarm Yard. You, you have Realm Walker, so you get to put a bunch of changelings on top with the, the dwarven recruiter and then just play them all because you have the like Magda thing going on. It, it's just like a, a complete nonsense deck, but obviously just looks like a lot of fun. But on a more serious note, uh, what else you got for us? Oh. Well, we got to let's talk a little EGA of the week, our ethical gray area. And so, you know, should you tell your opponent what they did wrong after the match? And so this is a classic topic that comes up because one of the great things about magic is you get to play a game and, you know, it's fun to socialize with an opponent. If you're going to mtglasvegas.com for that event, you'll be able to do some of that there. And, you know, you like being able to help your opponent and, Who doesn't like to get better at magic? So isn't telling them what they did wrong after the match uh, helping them get better, Luis? You really got to pick your spots. Uh, You know, for example, like if you if you beat someone for top eight of a PTQ and then, you know, you're worried you're going to face them in the top eight. One of the things you can do is give them incorrect advice after the match to set up your 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 finals. (laughs) Or or is that is that not what you meant by EGA? (laughs) Uh, I was kind of referring to the fact that maybe not all advice is is welcome or or warranted at, at a given moment. Yeah, I I think you have to be the most careful, and this this kind of follows from the like good game conversation when someone has just lost a match because you know most people, and I think this is actually a good thing, put a lot of you know emotional energy into their matches of Magic. I think that that that's a healthy thing to do. It's good to care about things, you know, to to a point, of course. Uh, and if someone has just lost a match, they probably most people don't want to hear about what they did wrong. But, you know, Ben S is, is is a one of a kind, and he would he would love for you to tell him how he screwed up so he could avoid it in the future. You just have to be very careful, especially if you don't know the the person you're talking to. Yeah, and you you know you mentioned that right after somebody lost a match, they don't want to hear what they messed up, but also right after somebody won a match. So let's say you know, well at least they won, then I could give them some advice, maybe critiquing their play. But the reality is, is like they just won a match. They're probably feeling really good about themselves and the decisions they made, and that you maybe jumping in and sort of telling them what they did wrong maybe isn't the best way to sort of help them to to let them experience and enjoy this moment. If you do genuinely want to offer someone some advice, um, I do have a couple of tips. The first of which is you can, you know, first just ask if they would like any advice on some of the things. You could ask them a question, even if if you need to do this, ask them a question about why they made a play that they did. Um, 
But in reality, I wouldn't do either of those. The reality is, is here's what I would do. If you want to offer somebody advice about something that happened on a match and you think it would help them, you could start off by first requesting that kind of feedback for yourself. So you could if, say, you know, you could just be like, hey, I'm curious. I'm trying to get better. Is there anything I did during the match that you saw that I could have done differently? And if they give you some feedback, I wouldn't try to correct them, really. I would try to just understand their feedback and make them feel appreciated for taking some time to give you some feedback. And then oftentimes what will happen in a spot like that is that they will then say, oh, you know, the same for me. Do you have anything? I'm wanting to get better, too. And when that happens, I would, first of all, try to give them the feedback in the least judgmental way possible. And I would not try to go too far over the top. If they told you one thing that they noticed that they weren't sure about, that it looked weird to them that you did, don't. And then they ask you for feedback back. Please don't turn that into an excuse to rattle off a list of 10 things that they did wrong that you noticed. So, you know, ultimately what this really just comes down to is treat the way you want to be treated. Ultimately, you guys and and gals and whoever are out there, you got to do whatever you think is best. But um, this is sort of how I go about approaching this topic. And I, I think it works pretty well because first and foremost, it, it, it tries to put the the opponents um, at the primary point of the experience, which is ultimately if the reason you're doing this is to help them. Well, they know better what's going to help them than you do most of the time. Yeah, I, I, I've, I had a, a particularly bad experience at a, one of the pro tours where I was playing this blue green Karn deck. And uh, I, I, I ended up kind of trouncing someone in the mirror, and they did not seem receptive at all to any any advice I tried to offer them. <laughs> First of all, I don't even think that's true. That's pro- did, did that, is that actually your experience of our conversation? I don't remember what we said at all, and I'm sure you didn't get riled up. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I remember about that match is it's the only time in history I've ever seen someone ask you to play faster. It, that's because which, you, which I did, you did, and I was taking a long time. I had a tough decision on that turn, so yes, yes, you needed to decide which way you were going to utterly destroy me. And after I, I a was, minute or so of that, it was like, hey, can you make a play so we can finish okay, the match? So you when did. you have a ninety-seven percenter and a ninety-five percenter, you want to choose the ninety-seven percenter. I wasn't sure which one was the ninety-seven and which one was the ninety-five. So no, this, I mean, this, yeah, this I'm just having some fun. You're 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 demonstrating that my opening here was actually kind of accurate. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our main topic. So our main topic tonight is we're going to be talking about the top threats in standard. And and so, you know, the, the, the classic, Luis, the old saying about threats is in magic is there's no threats. There's just wrong answers. There's, there's and, no wrong threats. <laughs> sorry, there's no wrong threats. There's just wrong answers. Thank you. I got it backwards. And it makes sense if you want on one level, because let, let's be real. As long as you stop your opponent from killing you and you do do that at 100 percent success, you probably can eventually find a way to kill them. Um, But that's not really as true for modern magic, where picking the right threats is oftentimes going to be better and more effective than trying to just stomp out every single threat your opponent can have. And so you want to have the right answers, of course, and that's important, but also having the right threats and the ones that allow you to sort of take um, sort of shape the game and put pressure on your opponent is a really good way to approach magic in the modern age. And so obviously that's why we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about threats today. Yeah. Basically if you, if you look at magic as uh, you know, like there's threats and there's answers and it doesn't break down quite that cleanly, right? Cause some cards are both mm. right? a, a like a flame tongue Kavu type effect or a ravenous Chupacabra can both, you know, kill something, but also pressure the opponent. But from a like a very like 
you know, fundamentals perspective, if you play a bad creature and they don't kill it, it can still kill them. But if you have a bunch of removal in your hand and your opponent doesn't play a creature or they play the wrong kind of creature, they're not at a big disadvantage. A classic, a classic example of this is uh, you're playing a control deck and you side in four copies of Dark Confidant and your opponent is now forced to leave in lightning bolts that have no other targets. If they draw bolt and you draw Dark Confidant, it's even. If they draw bolt and you don't draw Dark Confidant, advantage you. If you draw Dark Confidant and they do not draw Lightning Bolt, also advantage you. So in that case, the threats have it, right? The threats are are a lot a lot stronger in that in those three different scenarios. In two of those scenarios, the threats win, and in one of those scenarios, it's even. But when it comes to when it comes to modern magic, you 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 are going to end up where both players are going to be playing a fair amount of you know proactive cards, and you need to make sure you have the right ones because. If everyone, you know, if one week everyone decided to play a lot of disdainful strokes, coming with like a, a deck based around casting, you know, Tovalar's Huntmaster, the six mana six six that puts mm. two tokens into play, it's not going to work out that that well for you. Likewise, if everyone, you know, this is what we saw last standard, comes with Bone Crusher Giants, well, you probably don't want to play play too many Lotus Cobras and three mana, you know tutus or whatever because that's you are choosing the wrong threats for for what the answers are out there so i have a i have a like a quick request i what like what if we went what if we had like an episode where we like didn't mention bone crusher giant what do you think <laughs> all right i i i can see that there are you know that this was the 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 wrong threat in the sense that uh it, it is it is kind of bringing us back to the last two years where i probably had I don't know, 250 Bone Crusher Giants cast against me in tournaments or something like that. <laughs> Do you think Bone Crusher Giant is the most named card on the po- in the podcast history? Um Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure. That 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 there is I, I suppose a stiff competition, but uh yeah, Bone Crusher Giant is definitely going to be one of the most named even if it's not the the literal most named. Yeah. One thing, uh, one thing I was thinking about, Luis, when you were talking about how, like, you know, both threats and pressures can apply, um, or threats and answers can apply pressure to your opponent. I was thinking about the idea. It's like in paper, honestly, when you're playing in paper, and it's good to give people some tips again. You know, you've made a good play when you made your opponent uncomfortable and kind of squirm in their seat. And that's honestly, it's like if you ever like, there's a, you know, we have the advantage bar and things like that. But the more your opponent is squirming in their seat the more likely it is that you're doing good things in the match for whatever it is your role should be. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that th- those kind of physical tells can help. And even on arena, you make a play and then your opponent sits there and thinks and thinks and thinks and thinks. That's usually good for you because if they had an obvious good play, they would just make it. Yes. Sometimes they're deciding between two really good plays, as, as you mentioned earlier, but most of the time that means they have an unpleasant play to make and they're just trying to delay it as long as possible. But yeah, it, the, the the behavior you described, Luis, of like, I have a 95% or a 97% or line, and then I'm going to spend a bunch of time tagging about it. That's like a real pro behavior. That is not <laughs> the thing that you're going to run into the ladder too much. No. Um, <laughs> so uh, let, let, let's, let's, let's turn our focus to standard here, because first of all, we've got a new standard, a lot of stuff going on. So this will be helpful to you when you're making new decks or deciding, you know, which slots to fill your decks with, because uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's a very wide open metagame right now, but also because standard right now, you know, I think it's accurate to say is dominated by proactive decks. That won't necessarily be the case as the metagame shakes out. We've got a lot, you know, a, a lot of good metagame, you know, happenings in the future here, right? We're, we're, we're hoping at least. I would imagine 
if you wanted to like, you know, if you had to, if you had to like buy stock in different archetypes, control is one that I, I think I, I would expect its stock to go up rather than down. Because historically, control is not good in the first week or two of a new format. You know, because unless control got some like incredible tools that are, you know, so hard to resist. But for the most part, control does actually have the wrong threat, wrong answer thing. You put a bunch of powerful assertive cards in your decks in the first week, you're probably going to do all right for yourself. But you put the wrong removal spell in or the wrong counter spell in or just counter spells in general, if they're not good, you're going to end up getting walloped. And I imagine the control decks are going to kind of evolve at a pretty decent rate once it be, once the metagame narrows down because metagames always start with like 30 decks like if you join oh, yeah. if you join the arena rank queue right now you will no way to predict what you're going to play against you could play against black white control teamer ramp mono blue delver white weenie red black sack like there's just all these decks in two weeks if there's like a let's say a big tournament there's going to be like six decks or not 25 yeah, there's always a lot of fake diversity in formats when you sort of when when stuff gets banned or especially with new sets and the most with rotations. And, you know, it's it's funny. You might think that like pros are sort of immune from fake diversity, but pros have pet cards, too, just like everyone else. I mean, I remember when Kaladesh was around and it was just like me and Matt Nass hanging out at uh, his old apartment. And it's just like. Well, I don't really know what's changed, but for some reason we're trying out Whirler Virtuoso combo again. And <laughs> and uh, stuff like that is the stuff that goes on in the first week or two of the format that you'll see a little bit less. So, but, uh, you know, so obviously the control decks will both benefit from being able to identify what the best threats are, but also people will kind of spend less time on the ones that just aren't working out. Yeah. And, and what we're going to focus on today is we're going to look at the different threats in standard why each of them are good. And so this is instructive if you want to make a deck full of threats or if you want to make make a deck full of answers because we're also going to take a look at ways you can kind of fight against these threats. And if, and even though this the, the list that we put together, well actually that I put together uh, as the as the main host, uh it it has all threats because that's what we wanted to focus on. I think that like the top 5 cards on the list are actually just like a, you know, thereabouts the best five cards in standard that just also happen to be proactive because that's the best thing to be doing in standard, at least right now. Yeah. And I didn't know that we were going to be um, bragging and taking credit for which of us wrote the show notes, but this is a, that's a topic I'm very interested in for the future. So I'll keep that in mind, Luis. I don't think, I think the less said on that, the better for future shows. Uh, so <laughs> let, let, let's start with uh, a planeswalker, a uh, Lolth spider queen. And uh, I think that Lolth is is a pretty cool card be- that actually from AFR, so uh, not 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 one that we, you might have seen before rotation, but at this point, uh, Lolth is showing up in decks like Mono Black Control or Red Black Sack. So Lolth's three black black for a four loyalty Planeswalker. Whenever a creature you control dies, you put a loyalty counter on her, and she does not go up in loyalty unless your creatures die. She has no plus abilities, which is why Red Black Sack really likes this card. You can pay zero to draw a card and lose a life. You can minus three to get two, two, one black spider tokens with menace and reach. And then you get an emblem, a minus eight, you get an emblem that's just like one of the worst designed emblems I've seen. Just, I'll read it to you. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's, you get an, I am. You get an emblem with whenever an opponent is dealt combat damage by one or more creatures you control. If that player lost less than eight life this turn, they lose life equal to the difference. So it's not powerful. It's not exciting. And it's kind of a math problem. Really not sure what they were going for here besides the spiders have eight legs thing. But regardless, Loth is a card drawing slash spider generating machine. And Loth is a, is a great example because 
Loth is pretty hard to answer. I mean, this, historically, Planeswalkers are very good at against control decks. A, a very common thing you'll see is aggro or mid-range decks siding in Planeswalkers because control decks side in cards like Anger of the Gods or, you know, one mana deal twos or Doom Blades against aggro. And then aggro tries to side in Planeswalkers, which kind of dunk on all that, like, one-for-one removal spells or even sweepers. Yeah, Loth is pretty cool. Uh, I actually had Loth in the AFR pre-release, and it, there, there was a lot of text going on. Um, neither one of my matches uh, finished or or went had enough time to go to a third game. It was kind of funny. But, yeah, I mean, one thing I really like about Loth is that she sort of is sort of the really good in a lot of different spots. When you have some board presence, she draws cards. When you don't have board presence, dropping down multiple threats – and then the threats are also by being two one two two ones with reach, really good at stopping flyers. And so Wolf is just quite flexible. But ultimately, like if your opponent is just trying to kill your creatures to get to some sort of end game, uh, Wolf is really going to make that an issue for for your opponent. And yeah, with the Cade uh, tokens in the format, that's a nice little way to sort of uh, quickly get Wolf some more some loyal loyalty where. You know, if you have a decayed token or two, the turn you drop Loth is a pretty good turn to get that attack, and you'll get Loth's loyalty up quite a bit. Oh, yeah, something like Jadar, Ghoul, Caller of Nefalia that gives you, like, a decayed token every turn if you don't have any, or or other other cards that are kind of giving you de- decayed tokens for value. That That is a good point. Loth is about the epitome of mid-range in the sense that Loth can... You play Loth, make two spiders. Your opponent's now going to get attacked for four next turn. So if your your control opponent's at ten, that's a that's a real threat they have to deal with. Or you make two spiders to block your opponent's two ground creatures or even air creatures they have reach against aggro. So it's not the most aggressive or the most defensive. It is both. And uh, <laughs> I would say you typically want to play Loth when you've got a lot of fodder to to feed Loth, whether that's decayed tokens or things to sacrifice like various pests and and what have you. And if you expect creature combat to matter, because the 2-1 reach menace creatures are pretty good when there's combat happening. They're not the best pure threat against like a creatureless board, though the card draw spells or the card draw ability starts to kind of tick up a little bit better there. In general, what do you, what would you say are the best ways to answer Loth or Planeswalkers like Loth? Um, I mean, with Loth, it's really just going to be about, I would, it's going to be mostly about having a Planeswalker kill spell. I think that's the biggest thing I'm going to want with that or counter spell. She's just, I, Loth is more strong because she gives you ongoing advantages. The coming down and making two, two ones is good, but it's not like totally game breaking. And so as long as you can ensure that you aren't just allowing her to just sit and play, turn after turn zeroing and drawing a ton of cards. If I'm any playing any sort of slower strategy, that's mostly going to be my focus is like making sure that doesn't happen is going to be a big deal. And for aggressive strategies, um, I mean, you can, first of all, the spiders are, are just X ones. And so basically anything can attack into them. And so Loth comes down and gives you a good amount of board presence. But if you've been able to build something up, she's not, She really doesn't. If she comes down and needs to make spiders, she's probably going away. And so that's something to watch out for. Um, The the other the thing I wanted to note, too, is uh, keep in mind the interaction with first strike with Loth when you are defending for Loth. Loth's um, death ability or when a creature dies, put a loyalty counter on Loth can lead to some funny interactions where if a first striker kills one of the blockers, 
before a normal combat damage sort of card without first strike deals damage to Loth. It is possible that what will end up happening is you will be very sad about your prediction about how much damage Loth needed to take to die. If it's just two normal creatures, just, you know, without first strike getting in there like that, this interaction won't happen. But because first strike damage happens at a separate earlier time, the loyalty counter can go on from first strike killing something. Another thing Loth is particularly weak against is trample because the spiders having such low toughness, if you, even against a board with like just one creature, like an old growth troll or something, if you go play Loth minus three, make two spiders, the troll can just attack and kill Loth. Granted, it trades for the spiders, but of course the troll, you know, comes back. We know how that all works, but uh, you have to watch out for that. So I would look to be playing Loth, uh, if you have ways to ump up its loyalty, and, the, and I would look to answer it, like most Planeswalkers, with Counterspells or Planeswalker kill spells, but I think Lolth is actually less weak against the kill spells because of the 2-1 immediacy, the immediate, the 2-1 spiders, but probably a little weaker than a, the average Planeswalker against something like a burn spell, because her loyalty is just not that high, and you know, I can imagine you, you make the spiders and get like Prismari commanded, and you, you don't feel like it's you, you got some huge advantage there. Uh so the next card I want to talk about was Poppet Stitcher. This is the two and a blue, two, three. Uh, whenever you play an instant or sorcery, you get to make a decayed token. And then during your upkeep, you can if you have three or more creature tokens, and they don't have to be just the, the tokens the Poppet Stitcher makes. It it combos with other creature tokens, such as uh, Alrin's Epiphany, for example. It's a nice little combo with Poppet Stitcher. Uh, you can flip Poppet Stitcher into Poppet Factory, which makes all your tokens three threes and they lose all their text. So the decayed tokens no longer kill themselves and they're able to block and whatnot. And this is a funny one because it's a threat that really doesn't show up in aggro, aggro decks or even mid-range decks. It's mostly like a control slash combo-ish deck. Like the, the, the place that's seeing the most play now is, <clears throat> is in blue-black with Auron's Epiphany because if you can play Poppet Stitcher and protect it for a turn and then cast Epiphany, you, <clears throat> you can flip the Poppet Stitcher on your next upkeep. Yeah, I do. You know, we're not going to get into the whole philosophical discussion about what or is, is not a combo. Let's just say that All Runs Epiphany, if we, if we want to use a certain definition of combo, is going to get referenced a lot. Um, <laughs> but there are a bunch of cool things going on in the blue-black decks that make Poppet Stitcher so nice. One of my favorites is the interaction with Fading Hope. That's the new Unsummon, but if the creature's CMC or mana value is three or less, you also get the scry one. And so that's a nice way to proc the Poppet Stitcher to get that trigger to bounce it back to hand um, when a removal spell goes on to it and to also give you something which can disrupt an early threat and just be a tempo play if you need it. So there's a lot going on to like about Fading Hope in your Poppet Stitcher decks. And then the same thing goes with meet the Meat Hook Massacre where, you know, it, it's an it's a sweeper. It's a black sweeper. That's the XBB legendary enchantment. But man, getting to sort of sweep away creatures and when your own creatures are dying, your opponent's getting drained. And so, you know, it's it's one of those things where none none of these like sort of like damage sources, whether it's the decay tokens or the meat hook massacre is probably the thing that kills your opponent. But all of a sudden it makes it that instead of your Hall of Storm Giants needing to activate uh, three times or two times, maybe it's only one time. And now that's very threatening and your opponent has to really play around it. And so those are the kinds of nice things is that there's you can slow roll the Poppet Stitcher if you're trying to proc it in the same turn with something like an Infernal Grasp. And so th there's a lot of cool things going on in these blue-black decks. And it just it just makes your opponent's life earlier, Luis. You mentioned earlier the Dark Confidant thing. And Poppet Stitcher in these control decks is very much that. 
So I, I would say that this is almost on the opposite side of most of these threats because it, it is featured in a control deck. And as such, the way to look at Poppet Stitcher, if you're on the other side of it, is you don't even really care that much about answering Poppet Stitcher directly. Because you said, like you said, there's that Fading Hope combo where they can bounce it. <clears throat> Poppet Stitcher into Duress can also be pretty good against like a tapped out opponent. You can take whatever ha they have, or you just cast Duress on them on turn one and then cast a turn three Poppet Stitcher when the coast is clear. So... The way I would look at attacking this is actually just putting a lot of pressure on the blue-black deck such that they don't get to make the plays you're describing. They don't get to go <clears throat> pop it, Stitcher, into Fading Hope because they just had to spend their turn killing your stuff. And it, it's it's kind of funny because this is this is reversing the paradigm here, but uh, I think that the best way to, to beat pop Stitcher is just to put them under so much pressure that it doesn't help because this isn't Monastery Mentor. The, the key difference is... If you go Poppet Stitcher plus play two spells, you still only have one blocker in its Poppet Stitcher, which is not a great card to put throw into combat. The tokens can't intrinsically block. The Poppet Stitcher has to live, or you have to live, until the next upkeep. So if you can present a big enough board that they're not able to, to use the cards in the, in the order that they want, the card gets a lot weaker. And if you really put them on the back foot, the card get, gets a lot weaker as well. So until Poppet Stitcher starts showing up, in, you know, outside of these like kind of control removal style decks, which I think is hard because the decks have to have so many spells. They're not really going to be a, you know, a more, much more assertive deck. I think that the best way to beat it is to not really focus on killing it as much as killing the opponent. Yep. Um, as I, and I think the, the, the biggest thing with Poppet Stitcher is like a 2 2 zombie with the K doesn't have to be a big deal. And even, um, Doll Factory also doesn't, or Poppet Factory doesn't have to be a big deal. If I was trying to be better against it, um, going over the top of it is probably the place I would start. And that can be everything from like sort of bigger combos, like the epiphany stuff, but also, you know, it goes over the top of uh, three threes, uh, four, four flyers, uh, dragons and flying threats. And having a bunch of those is, is going to make it so that you don't have to deal with the fact that even if they flip it over into pop it factory, uh, that that's just not something that's going to be a big concern for your game plan. And so all of those sorts of like, uh, harder to block threats are going to be nice, even if you're not trying to play a lot of removal. And uh, the, the standard format definitely has a number of good flyers. We're going to be talking about more of them as the, the show goes on. In fact, we could get to our next one here, Luis. Moonvale region has made its presence felt in a variety of red decks. And this is the new legendary dragon from Innistrad Midnight Hunt. Three and a red for a 4-4 four, four flyer. Whenever you cast a spell, you can discard your hand. Oh, boy. Um, but if you do, you draw a card for each of that spell's colors. And so when you play, you know, just something like an expressive iteration, you discard your hand and draw two cards. And then it's got a death ability. When it dies, it deals X damage to any target where X is the number of colors among permanents you control. So first of all, Luis, where are we seeing this card show up? And uh, what, what sort of is, what is it good against in standard right now? Uh, quick clarification. When you said legendary, you meant the rarity, right? Not, it's not literally a legend. Oh yeah, it's a mythic. It's not a legendary. Yep. <laughs> other some other I, I some other card games refer to the highest legend. Their highest rarity is legendary, and uh, I got a little mixed up first. <laughs> but what BK means by that is he he, he works on Eternal. Uh, it, it, and uh, as did I for many years. And yes, the highest rarity in Eternal is legendary. So uh, you know, no no worries. But um, Moonbear Regent that is kind of being used like an experimental frenzy style card in terms of the card draw where. Whenever you play a spell, because you're mostly playing monocolor spells, this this is like nominally a like prismatic build around, right? With the like, oh, draw a card for each of that spell's colors and, you know, deal damage equal to the number of different permanents you have. But 
Mostly it's showing up in Monterhead, where you play this, your hand's probably pretty near empty, and then you start casting one and two mana red spells, and each time you play one, you just discard your zero cards and draw one card. Now, the reasons to play Moonvale Regent, it's actually very different from Experimental Frenzy in, in practice, because Moonvale Regent's not good against the control decks where Frenzy was good. Like the whole joke with Frenzy was you curve out and then they cast their, you know, three mana, all creatures get minus two, minus two, cry the carnarium or whatever. And then you play Frenzy and then their hands full of a bunch of Doomblades and then you just outcard them. Moonvale Regent actually doesn't do well against Doomblade. They just kill it and you probably deal one damage to them. Where Moonvale Regent shines is against other aggro decks because a 4-4 flyer is harder for them to deal with. It's fairly resilient to like the common burn spells of the format and all that. And because it leaving and pinging for one, maybe two, if you've got something else slightly weird going on, means that it'll take out like a 2-1 on the way out. So I would play Moonvale Regent if I was looking for ways to kind of get an edge against other aggressive decks. Like you play this against White Weenie, yeah, maybe they giant killer it and you take and you kill one of their two ones. Or maybe they don't kill it and you draw three cards a turn and then you, you win pretty easily off that. And you cast play with fire, kill something, draw a card, etc. So Moonville Regent is more, uh, I consider it more of an aggro, like mirror breaker than something that you want against control or mid-range. And that really becomes obvious when you look at the ways to answer it. So Moonville Regent is fairly well, is fairly easily easy to answer. You just need a way to kill a creature. So most control decks pretty good at doing that. Can't use power word kill, actually. That is one advantage uh, yep. because it's a dragon. But, you know, Infernal Grasp is seeing plenty of play. It's not the best against counterspells because it costs four mana. So, you know, a counterspell can still get it. Pretty good against burn. Is it dragons is actually not going to want to see this card resolve, especially since it can also just block a goldspan dragon if you need it to. But against most of the black decks, this is really not what I'd be leaning on because most black kill spells are going to do a pretty good job of getting this thing off the battlefield. Yeah. The, uh, sweeper. I think a common way that you're going to see Moonvale region be played is sort of like a little bit more of the top end of the deck because of all those good, like experimental frenzy vibes you were talking about, Luis. And so I'm, as I'm thinking it through, I'm thinking like, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking I want to have sweepers in the mix a little more often against this card. Cause I'm imagining a pretty common play pattern is going to be trying to use the first couple of turns of the game to play some threats that bait out the removal so then Moonvale region can sort of stick. And now once that, if that's sort of the game plan they're going for, um, a, a, a big sweeper effect that just, you know, deal five to everything is, is the kind of thing that sort of says, okay, you, yeah, you got ahead and you stuck your dragon, but now I'm going to catch right back up. Um, and, but obviously, yeah, the doom blades all kill this. Well, saw coming interacts with the swell. So Moonvale region to me, it really, it, it's going to, a lot of it's going to come down to sort of, how well is the curve leading up to this? Because I like this card more as a curve topper and less as like a prismatic build around. Yeah, and, and I imagine that some people will make, you know, fun prismatic five-color decks with this card. Imagine imagine this card dying with a Niv-Mizzet Reborn in play, you know? that, that I'm sure you'll try to do that in cube at some point. But uh, for, for the most part, Moonvale... <laughs> you don't know me. <laughs> I, I do, actually. Uh, it, it is good at... Uh, doing, you know, the the thing against aggro and pretty bad against removal spells, which is actually kind of the opposite of our next creature, which is uh, Immersturm Predator. This is the two red, black, three, three flying, also dragon, that uh, whenever it becomes tapped, you can exile a card in their graveyard and put a plus one, plus one counter on it. And you can sack another creature to tap it and make it indestructible until end of turn. And 
this what this card is being used in is red black sack exclusively. Like there's basically no other place unless you talk about like a Mardu sack deck. But it's going to be a uh, Rakdos based sacrifice deck because this offers you if you have enough fodder. A 3-3 Indestructible that almost immediately becomes a 4-4, grows every turn, very hard to kill, and even messes with your graveyard while it's at it. So it's the kind of card that turns on your, like, steal effects, where if you can steal one of your opponent's creatures, less less happening now, now that Claim the Firstborn is gone. But uh, talk about a card that also just really dunked on small creature decks. Wow. Uh, Immersturm Predator is a really good card if you expect a lot of spot removal that doesn't kill indestructible creatures. So you don't want this against uh, like a white deck playing the Banishing Light equivalent, uh, whatever is in the set, right? That's not really what you're looking for. Uh, and it's not particularly even good against Bounce because it's a four mana creature that you know, your investment grows over time. But if your opponent's showing up with uh, Doomblade effects and burn spells, this card's going to really get, give them a bad time. Yeah, exiling removal is a uh, is a pretty valuable thing in standard right now. Uh, there's just a lot of threats which have sort of death triggers and um, abilities where they can come back from the graveyard, and so you know you, you're not necessarily playing it for any one of them, but you will appreciate having that. And I would say it's the thing that I from the early standard that I would I would suggest ensuring that you sort of are looking into what your color can do to exile things. And you know, for instance, black has something like eaten alive. Um, the de- the new Deccan Stone in white, its its name is escaping me for the moment. Faithful but that card, for- yeah, that's that's another one. And whether it's something like this or Dragolich, like any of the things that are just like all of these sort of like there's just a lot of flyers which kind of like are popping in and out of the graveyard, and so they'll help against Emberstorm Predator a lot. And uh, and and sort of making it so that your opponent is also punished when they sacrifice creatures can be a big thing. Um, and so. What's the uh, there, there's a new Kalidus, um, but I'm, its name is escaping me. <laughs> Gisa, the ghoul caller. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The new Gisa, exactly, and that that sort of a card is really effective when your opponent is uh, is trying to sacrifice creatures to get a bonus, and you know the meat hook massacre is another, and so trying to recognize, you know, sometimes it's not just about answering the actual card itself, but having cards which are which speak to the theme that your opponent's on. And that's uh, that's how I would approach the Immersion Predator problem if uh, you're looking for things that are good against it. Yeah, and, and speaking of Meat Hook Massacre, that's also uh, pretty strong just in general because it can also just go over the top of the dragon and kill it itself, like w- given it enough mana. So um, the other thing about the Predator, by the way, is first of all, the decks it appears in tend to be good against creature decks and kind of poor against control decks because they don't present that fast a clock and they don't have, they're more of a mid-range deck, which typically loses to things like Alrun's Epiphany. And then the other thing is the Predator doesn't actually kill the opponent all that quickly, like compared to a lot of the other threats on this list. It's a four mana card that probably attacks them for five the next turn, but requires like investment of resources to do so. And one way to, to, to beat this is to go over the top with things like, you know, they play Predator and you cast uh, Auron's Epiphany. So uh, looking at the next one's kind of funny. So this is Briar Bridge Tracker. This is a the Tireless Tracker Light. This is two and a green for 2-3 uh, with Vigilance. And uh, when it comes to play, you get a clue. And then as long as you have a token in play, it gets plus 2, plus 0. Oh. So Briar Bridge Tracker is actually like one of the less scary threats on the list, but you always get your money. You always get your payoff. That's, that's the strength of it, is that 
whenever you play this card, assuming it doesn't get countered, which is uh, the assumption of every magic card, you're going to get a two-for-one because you get this clue that you can sack to draw a card. It's not the scariest threat in the world, but you only paid three mana and it exchanges well against removal. So I kind of view Briarridge Tracker as the kind of card you want when you're not really even sure what to expect and you want something that's like good against aggro, good against control. It's just a very clean two-for-one the trade-off being it's it's not going to be a driving force in any deck where it appears. Yeah, and it, it's it's just going to kind of make life better for you when you're playing with Briar Ridge Tracker. You're never going to be sort of sad to... You're rarely going to be sad to draw it, but you're also rarely going to be ecstatic. It's never it's it's rarely going to be the card that you point to as like it won me the game. Whereas Tireless Tracker really was that card, but that's just not exactly how Elvish Visionaries typically play out. Um, and so if I was playing a green deck, it would definitely always start in my deck and I'd be excited to play with it. I wouldn't necessarily mind cutting it because at the end of the day, what Briarbridge Tracker is good against is it's the solid body that continues to replace itself if you spend some more mana on it. Now, as to what's good against it, the um, whenever anybody's trying to do Rogue Refinery, Elvish Visionary things, there's sort of two uh, ways you can approach this. You can do it harder. And if that can work, you know, if you can out tireless tracker, the tireless tracker people I oftentimes think of the green white company deck in modern with like it had Corsair and tireless tracker and uh, and um, the one, the ramen up excavator that could play lands. It was like, man, that thing was just value out of control. The other thing that you can do, though, Luis, is make the game not about trying to play with rogue refiners and, and Briar Ridge trackers. And I how prom- do you make the game not about them? <laughs> I promise I won't bring this up except maybe five more times. It's it's cards like Alrun's Epiphany, uh, or like you you're, you're playing Green White Landfall, like Renin Seven, just like making multiple giant elementals or, or copying them with a Seeker's Chariot, like doing just massive things. Where the fact that your opponent got to draw an extra card on your three drop, which by the way costs an additional two mana, it just doesn't. You know th- that's not what the game's going to be about. Um, but I, I do kind of like putting you know one of these like. Again, very, like, not the highest ceiling, but definitely a very high floor card here, which is what Briar Bridge Tracker offers. Uh, another card it's an important card to know about. If you're just trying to kill everything, that card will stop you. Yes. Uh, Arlen uh, Pax Hope is, is a pretty cool card. This is the new Arlen Planeswalker, and it's double-sided. It has a night-day going on, where on the front side, it's two red-green, starts with four loyalty. You have minus three, make two, two, two wolves. Uh and uh, when she flips, or or and she has plus one until your next turn, you can play uh, your creature spells with flash, and they come in with a plus one plus one counter. And then when she flips, she has a plus two ability that adds a red and a green, or a zero ability where she becomes a five five trample haste indestructible wolf. And Arlen has shades of Asika's chariot, right? Where you cast this, <laughs> you make two. Yeah, two tokens. you could say that. But, Actually, I, the thing I was going to say is like, you know, be nice to your opponent when they're playing Arlen Packs Hope against you because it's possible they don't have the wild cards to craft a Seekus Chariot or they didn't want to play it right now or they don't know about it. And we, we could be kind to them. I, this card is important. And I think a Seekus Chariot might get banned at some point, to be honest. But like, yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the two, as you mentioned. So, the, but there, there are some key differences as well. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, the 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 way that I think Arlen is best used is well, unsurprisingly, in a deck with other day night cards, other werewolf cards, for for multiple reasons. One of which, and you know, we're going to talk about Reckless Stormseeker in a little bit. When you play a werewolf, if your opponent kills it, it's already started the night day cycle, right? Again, assuming they don't counter it, 
So what will sometimes happen when you have Arlen in your deck is it just, it is going to be night and then you just play Arlen and you just get to smash them for five. And that's a very different play experience. The Chariot at least gives them like a little bit of time to prepare for to lose. The Arlen just goes at their throat right away. Like Lolth, he's good in a lot of the same situations. You know, you want to be better against control, better against sweepers. She's less good defensively because just dies to flyers very easily, but better as a threat because of the 5-5 haste element or the plus one flash element, which is a pretty good way to hedge as well. So the ways to answer Arlen, not substantially different than most other Planeswalkers, but you do have to to be aware that this uh, this Planeswalker can hit you out of nowhere as a 5-5 wolf. One interaction that really matters when you're playing against Arlen decks, Flunk. Flunk is the, the spell that gives minus X minus X, where it's seven minus the number of cards in hand. And what will end up happening when they have Arlen is you kind of want to save your Flunks to kill flipped Arlens because Indestructible does not protect against Flunk. And this is something I was actually playing Demir against Werewolves, playing a couple sets of those, and and Flunk was was very useful there where I was specifically trying not to use Flunk on their other Werewolves because of how good it was at killing Arlen. And, you know, the opponent's not going to be able to resist making it a 5-5 five because five that's the, the other thing is adding two mana. So it's pretty hard to to not make it a 5-5 five five and bash when the, that's the option available. So Arlen is one of those threats in standard that exiling removal is good against. Uh, we'll add it to the very long list. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of that list, Old Growth Troll. <laughs> Old Growth Troll, of course, uh, now been around for a little bit, but it's still it's just as a reminder that for this Kaldheim Troll Warrior. Green, green, green for a 4-4 four, four trample. And when it dies, you turn it into an aura that enchants one of your force and gives that force the ability to tap for green, green. And then it also has the ability to now tap, pay one, tap, and sack the land to create a tapped 4-4 four, four green troll warrior creature token with trample. Old Growth Troll is one of the cards that sort of makes these green beatdown decks, the mono green deck and standard right now, tick. Again, if, if they're just trying to play fair and just kill this with an Infernal Grasp, Old Growth Troll will get the better of it. But by being a 4-4 four, four trample for three, it's certainly not going to give them a lot of choice in the matter. Yeah, they're they're just not going to be able to ignore it, and it goes over blockers if you have those. the The play pattern with old growth troll is often if you can get to a point where you're presenting lethal, keep enough mana up so you can make that four four end of turn if they did have end up having a sweeper. And old growth troll highlights the effectiveness of sweepers. Also, for some of the threats on this list, you know, like for example, Lolth as a five mana threat or or Ren and Seven. You know, or even Alrun's Epiphany and Goldspend Dragon, all the cards that cost five or more mana, I think counter spells are a pretty legit to, you know, card to have in your, your arsenal, right? When you're when you're worried about these powerful spells that do something as soon as they hit the battlefield or right when they resolve, I think having like a negator, a disdainful stroke, or saw it coming as one of the answers makes sense. I don't put ca- that old ghost troll in that ca- in that category because you realistically can't expect to be able to counter three mana spells very easily. There just aren't that many ways to do that. And they're mana efficient enough that relying on Sot coming to counter old growth trolls is just not the way to go about it. So if you really want to beat this card, you're going to want to find exile removal more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you obviously you can't play with old growth troll in every deck, so you're not going to see it all the time. But certainly when it shows up, you do want to have some amount of ways to to sort of handle a 4-4. And I would say in general, that's one of the things to watch out for in the standard format is there's a wide variety of ways that threats can be good. It can be because they can trip and replace themselves. They're bigger. They have evasion. 
there if you kill them with a just a doom blade effect they leave something behind and so it you, the biggest thing is that we're not actually even going to be able to tell you what the right removal spell to play with is in standard. It's just you probably want to have a mix. And those are the kinds of things you often want to be thinking about is like what works well against all of them. And that's one of the things that's been pulling people to blue some in the standard format is saw it coming. Sure does saw all those problems coming. It, it does. And one of the you know, one of you know, if we want to go back to the threat answer matrix, if you're, you're worried about counter spells, Try to play more things with Flash and try to play cheaper things. And Old Growth Troll, I think, falls pretty firmly in the, this will come out before counters are, are up or just set up a turn where you can play two spells into their counters. All right, let's talk about a card that definitely shows up before the counter spells are online, and that's Luminarch Aspirant, this white two drop. We've seen this card show up now in a variety of formats from last year's set Zendikar Rising. One and a white for a human cleric, a note to one one at the beginning of combat on your turn, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control. And Luminarch Aspirin is just fantastic. Anytime you get into any sort of creature matchup, you get to put the plus one plus one counter on the exact perfect spot to disrupt whatever blocks they were hoping for. You can load up a flyer if that's the thing. You can load up a life stealer if that's the thing. And our lifelinker, excuse me. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot to love about Luminar Gasper. Anytime combat is a big thing in the matchup and a big thing that your deck is trying to be better against, Luminar Gasper is going to be give you exactly what you need and where you need it. In L- Luminar Gasper, it ramps quickly. Like it. One of the counters already has haste, and it can you know it can provide a pretty big threat by itself. The the idea is to play this when you already have stuff in play and start getting those counters immediately. Plus, you end up being able to spread the counters around such that you put a plus minus one counter on your two one. Now, if you kill the Luminarch Aspirant, well, yeah, you still got a three two out of the out of the deal. This of this of course is a very low to the ground threat, and as such, gets kind of in under under the radar of counter spells and uh, even spot, spot removals. Rarely going to trade trade up mana wise, like Blood Chief's Thirst, like the only spell, or or play with fire or something like that that can actually get a mana advantage on this. So in general, the best answer to Luminarch Aspirant is going to be a sweeper, like something like Meat Hook, Meat Hook Massacre, because you. Clean up the, the the aspirant plus all the counters it's distributed. Yep. And next up, a card that is frequently seen with Luminarch Aspirant, as it is in every monocolor deck in the format. Faceless Haven, the Snowland, making its, uh, its weight felt in this new standard format, just like it was when this was sort of the preview standard format for uh, during uh, during the last core set, and that's Faceless Haven, the you know, you get to pay snow, 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 and it turns into a 4-3 creature with Vigilance uh, that has all creature types until end of turn. And so the big thing going on with Faceless Haven is it's sort of like it can both be almost like a reality smasher, a charging monster sword where it's just sort of coming in at the top of your curve, being that sort of Hellrider effect that sort of comes in over the top. When they think they've got all the creatures dealt with, that's when the Faceless Haven start getting fired up. Um, and just super resilient against most forms of interaction because anything slow um, just doesn't work against it. And then also it's so nice that if they leave up the instant speed removal, hey, you don't need to turn it into a creature this turn. Maybe you just play another threat from your hand instead. The the, the ideal curve with Faceless Haven is to go, you know, Snowland, play a card, Snowland, play a card, turn three, Faceless Haven, play a three drop. That opens the door for turn four, Snowland, animate Faceless Haven, probably hit for like seven or eight damage. Then your opponent 
probably plays a sweeper and then they die to place a save. And that's a, a tale as old as time, or at least as old as Cal time. And we've seen that happen over and over again. The biggest disadvantage, of course, to face a save is you pretty much have to be monocolored. Is it Dragons is like the only deck that has ever really utilized this in a two-color deck. And even then, it's a little less important now that uh, Hall of the Storm Giants is a card. So Faceless Haven, you're going to see it in mono red, mono green, mono white. Yeah. If mono black existed, also mono black. Even mono blue with like the the, the Ascendant Spirit and, and whatnot and Delver of Secrets. I've seen some people doing that sort of thing. Also, while we're talking about Faceless Haven, I think this is a part we should pull in all the, the lands from AFR, so like Lair of the Hydra and Hive of the Eye Tyrant, what have you, because how you play against them is going to be very similar. As a control deck, you do have to have a plan for these lands, because what is going to happen is similar. Faceless Haven happens to be the most aggressive of the bunch, just in terms of numbers in, numbers out, like three mana for a 4-3. But if you don't have a plan for these, you're going to end up trading for their creatures and then dying to this. It'll just get, get them get the aggro decks kind of over the finish line way too often for your comfort. You have a couple options. One is just efficient instant speed removal. Infernal Grasp does a pretty good job against all of these lands. Like, yeah. I could do better than that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, let's throw a Frostbite or a Nightning Bolt in there. Yeah, sure. One mana spells also do it most of the time. The, another card which I think... Is, is going to see a decent amount of play in, the, in these control decks, assuming they can swing it mana-wise, is Field of Ruin. Field mm. of Ruin's best function in this standard is popping these creature lands, you know, before they get an opportunity to hit you, or even during. They still count as lands during the attack. So sometimes, here's a little pro tip, if you have a Field of Ruin and they have two Lair of the Hydra, if you can, I mean, if it's really mana efficient to do it end of turn, sure, and you have to because you're going to tap out, go for it. Otherwise, just leave the Field of Ruin up, force them to commit their four or five mana to attack you with one before you use your Field of Ruin. For a while, that one Field of Ruin can kind of hold back two creature lands at once. One other thing that I just like against a card like Faceless Haven, Luis, is just like sort of cheap disposable blockers. Let's be real. If I play a Loth, a Loth Spider Queen and make two spiders and then your entire turn is firing up Faceless Haven so you can eat one of my spiders and then I get to untap with my Planeswalker, yeah, you got to eat my creature, Luis, but who's who got the better end of that one? Yeah, that, 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 is a, that is a really good way to answer this. And if you can look for kind of cheap value creatures as a potential way to to, to keep these, these creature lands off your back. Also, some of them do have low toughness, like, you know, Den of the Bug, Bear of the Red One, and you can end up sniping it with uh, even a very cheap spell. So you got to have a plan for these, though, because these are some of the best threats against control. The more control I expect in a format, the more I want to max out on these. Like some of the red-green decks just play four... Uh, Lure of the Hydra, some play like four layers and two Den of the Bugbear, and the more controlled, the more I'd want to increase those numbers to six, seven, maybe even eight, depending on if you can swing it, because these will often very, very uh, be very instrumental in punishing the control decks that tap out for like a Meat Hook Massacre. Yep. Great point. Uh, next, so let's talk about Reckless Stormseeker. We mentioned that earlier when talking about Arlen. And, you know, this was a this was a card we hit on last week, but it's certainly proven its weight in both red strategies and in werewolf decks. Two and a red for a human werewolf, two, three with Daybound. Beginning a combat on your turn gives something plus one, plus so, and haste until end of turn. So that sort of means the floor on this card. We're talking three mana, three, three haste. And then on the backside, it'll come down or transform into this during night. It's a 3-4, and at the beginning of your turn, you give something 
plus two plus oh haste and trample. Uh, so just a really solid card, really good with uh, with other creatures with uh, sort of hits triggers where you can get them going earlier. Uh, I really like this card with the Seekers Chariot. That's a super nice one. Just make sure you uh, make sure you fire up the Seekers Chariot before the trigger goes on the stack, and you got to choose a target with Reckless Storm Seeker. That'll be a fun one for the uh, the rules lawyers and paper too to uh, to work around to, <laughs> and to get into judge calls with. Oh yeah. Uh... I, I I have been really impressed by this specific werewolf. I mean, there is a werewolf deck in standard, right? That plays, you know, like uh, Tovalar and uh, the Kessig Naturalists and what have you and Arlen. But Reckless Stormseeker, I think, is the best of them. Uh, just that floor of a 3-3-3-3-3 three, 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 three haste is obviously incredible. But starting the day-night cycle when you have other night-day cards, it can be really punishing and force your opponent into kind of play patterns they don't like. So here, here's something that happens. You play Reckless Stormseeker and they go Infernal Grasp. Now on their turn, or Frostbite, let's say they're playing as a Dragons, whatever. On their turn, if they have a Counterspell in their hand, they're not going to want to tap out. But if they don't tap out, then it flips to Knight. All of a sudden, your cards, a bunch of your other cards just got a big boost. And so here's an experience I had playing Is it Dragons. They played a Reckless Stormseeker. I, I killed it with Frostbite. On my turn, I, I didn't play anything you know, leaving up uh, counterspell mana. And then they had enough mana to play something. I countered it. Then they played another Reckless Stormseeker and attacked me for five immediately because it's just a 5-4 trample haste at that point. And that's just going to make it a lot harder to deal with while also just being good rate, you know, just to begin with without really paying much of a cost for that. So I like Reckless Stormseeker. And this is the one werewolf that's also showing up outside of where dedicated werewolves decks either in gruel just doesn't have a werewolf theme or just like mono red it's just a powerful card and it's one you're going to have to get well acquainted with yep it this is a real problem if you ever get in the spot like you said the the night thing is like the biggest issue so you know this is kind of obvious but it's like please you know if you're if you're getting into this spot where it's like the werewolves keep flipping over in the night where they're more powerful you know cards like consider is a really nice one to make sure you're playing with, but any sort of like one mana cantripping effect in your colors, anything that's just sort of allows you to have some card flow, but will allow you to do two cards in a turn so that even if the werewolf player does try to flip it over, hey, now you have the opportunity to just flip it back so that that way they don't get the bonus of getting to sort of start the turn on night, which is a thing that any deck with sort of werewolves and sort of nightbound daybound cards is generally going to be interested in is how can I start the, the turn at night? Uh, n- next up, we have one of the best planeswalkers, probably the best planeswalker in standard right now, Luis Renan seven. So picking up the modern horizons, one mantle and uh, advancing the number Y one Renan seven is a legendary planeswalker. Ren that costs three green, green with starting loyalty five, and it's got a plus one ability to reveal the top four cards of your library. Put all land cards revealed this way into your hand and the rest in your graveyard. Uh, classic players will remember this as Mulch. One of the cards that I uh, played a lot with when I first got back into Magic. And then it's zero ability to put any number of land cards from your hand onto the battlefield tapped. The minus three, you get a green tree folk creature token with reach. And who has power and toughness equal to the number of lands you control. So, you know, we're usually talking about a pretty beefy uh, token, Luis, that could get even bigger. 
And then minus eight, return all permanent cards from your graveyard to your hand. You get an emblem with you have no maximum hand size. There's a lot going on. This is a four ability Planeswalkers, but Luis, it all starts with that minus three ability. And the fact is with, with Ren, we have a potentially powerful Planeswalker that the turn it comes down, it makes what is usually going to be a five, five or more with reach. And you still have two loyalty left. And, you know, as you mentioned, that that token grows as the lands as the lands uh, more lands come into play. That's an intrinsic quality of the token. So, uh, Ren really makes its money off being a card advantage machine against control, where a lot of the times you're actually just going to immediately plus one it because you don't want to play it and get minus three, get it like doom bladed and uh, maybe attacked by a creature land or or just. You don't really care about the token as much as just starting to recur, you know, get advantage by getting land and dumping cards in your graveyard. But then against aggro, you can just play it and immediately make a 5-5 five, five. pretty effective against Goldspan Dragon. If you if you can land this the turn before they were planning on playing mm. Dragon, a lot of the time they're not going to be able to attack you with that Goldspan Dragon because there's just not that many cards that for two mana off the treasure they get when they attack at instant speed can deal with, uh, with, with uh, the token. So... I like Renin 7 in a couple places. One is out of the sideboard, out of like something like a Gruel deck against control is just, hey, I'm going to board in a big beefy Planeswalker. You really have to have removal for this Planeswalker and you turn into more of like a red-green mid-range Planeswalker deck. And then the other is in these like kind of high-end ramp decks like the green-white landfall or teamer ramp where you just play this as one of your big threats often paired with Auron's Epiphany or other ways to accelerate or take advantage of the fact that you have this enormous Planeswalker in play. So this is a threat that won't typically be seen in aggro, except I do think out of the sideboard is decent. And in the main deck can be good with decks that can really utilize lands number six through eight or more. That's another key is that you want that plus one to actually be card advantage. And that's where like the Gruel decks fail a little bit where plus oneing is not... The Gruel deck doesn't use its 10th land all that often, though this is an argument for more Lair of the Hydra and Den of the Bugbear. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do love that that effect that you know you can you're not when you're playing with creature lands with Ren, you're not just sort of getting more material, you're also just getting more threats. And we're we're sort of entering the phase now where it's like if somebody asks you what your plan is for this card, you better have an answer and you better have thought about it because Ren and Seven is all over a new standard and it, and it makes sense because it does does have a bunch of loyalty and makes such a big threat consistently. Um, I would sort of say there's a couple of different plans I would have if I was looking for things to be better against it. So first of all, it's a five drop and you could just try to kill them and like don't even try to play this sort of mid-range attrition game plan against them. But if that's what you're doing, know that's what you're doing and kind of commit to it against the Ren and Seven deck. The second plan is to sort of stop Ren from hitting the table. That's your disdainful strokes and your sort of your discard effects like your like your duresses. Um, the, uh, the third sort of plan is, all right, they play it, they get the token and now I'm going to kill them or, or kill the Ren. And the way that you could do that is, you know, a bounce spell like fading hope is super nice. Very convenient that two loyalty left over afterwards is the exact same amount as a decay token, Luis. Uh, you, you, you think there might've been a pattern there when they were working on this card at wizards of the coast. And then the last one, you could of course use planeswalker removal or damage to kill Ren, the problem is, is that your opponent, if you were playing with red, is more likely to maybe go up first with Ren. And if you're going down, well, you're still going to have to deal with a token. So, you know, I wouldn't say that there's any perfect answer for how to deal with Ren. There's a variety of directions you can go. Um, 
But you better not just be like, well, I'm just going to just, you know, play magic and we'll see what happens. It would be good if you could point to some cards in your deck that will help you beat this. Yeah, and this is one where I do think counterspells are a legit path. It just costs enough mana that having a disdainful stroke or a negate or a sock coming handy is not an unreasonable place to 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 be. But I, I really, I, I very much agree with you that if burn is your answer, your opponent often is just going to not go for the token. They're just going to plus one it, and then you're just going to have a, a much harder time dealing with uh, the the kind of the value provided by red and seven. So. Good Planeswalker threat, and I, one of the things I like about Red and Seven, by the way, is it really does push you to kind of lean some directions in deck building, like more creature lands or things that come out of the graveyard or ways to use your your ninth land. And I think that that is cool. It's Loth is a little bit more. Hey, I, I I'm just trying to get some material here. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I, I, Luis, I like the thing that you called out there. And it's one of those things where, like, as you're moving up the ladder, you, you kind of want to be aware that sometimes strategies that worked in silver don't work in the next tier up. And that's something that you have to learn as a magic player. And uh, you can't get too frustrated by it. it. It happens to everybody. Some of the tricks that you use at FNM don't work at PTQs. And those some of those don't work at Grand Prix. And some of those don't work at PTs. And uh, despite Luis's uh, appearances, he does play a... Uh, fundamentally sound magic most of the time i found that the strategy i employed drafting blue black worked at silver but also at number one mythic where i've been firmly ensconced for for what feels like weeks moving on uh so ranger class you know you know this is just another great control beater you know Luis, it's almost like we've kind of hit on this a couple of times it's not going to blow anybody's mind when we say that a two mana enchantment which starts allowing you to cast creatures off the top of your deck but gives you just a two two at first is not going to be the best thing if the token gets killed if you don't have attackers, but does absolutely do a nightmare in control. And I think we could just probably move past it if you're good with that point. Yeah, it, that's really where it's at. It's not really for aggro mirrors. It's not really for... It's okay in mid-range decks, but mostly it's like, I want to spend a lot of mana on something control cannot easily remove, and it will let me win a long game against it. And this... Actually, this card specifically, I do want to mention, is what got uh, Manguchi to move off of having no threats in his blue-black deck. Like, his his version one of his Demir deck was, like, literally no win condition except, uh, you know, Hall of the Storm Giants and uh, Hive of the Eye Tyrant, just the two, the blue and black creature lands. He just lost to Ranger class so many times, he's like, I got to put some dragons in here or something. I need a way to close out the game. Yep. So speaking of dragons, we got Goldspan Dragon. Um, if you've never seen this card before, we're talking about the game Magic the Gathering and uh, most commonly played on the Magic the Gathering Arena program. But no, in all seriousness, uh, Goldspan Dragon almost needs no introduction. This five mana, four, four flying dragon with haste gives you a treasure when you attack. It makes your treasure sack for two mana. And the reality of what it does is it sort of, I mean, it does it all, Luis. It it kills people. It applies pressure on their planeswalkers. It blocks their flyers. It gives you more mana to do more things, uh, like cast Alrin's Epiphany, which will be coming up in just a moment. <laughs> yeah. So, Goldspin Dragon, where you want to use it isn't just like, hey, put this in every red deck. It's not. It's not to that level. It's not a bad place to start, to be clear. No, but like, especially now that like Embercleave's gone, it's not quite as appealing as it used to be. And like the the the, the aggro red decks, you know, like Gruel, for example, is I think largely moving away from it. But in any deck that can really utilize that mana, whether that's Alrun's Epiphany or whether that's casting a bunch of spells, like in the Rakdos deck that just has a lot of mana sinks, 
then Goldspan gets a lot more appealing, and it's especially good with counter spells. The classic curve, right, as you foretell saw it coming at some point, and then you go Goldspan attack, and that two mana off that treasure casts the saw it coming. So Goldspan is is one of the preeminent threats in standard, but one of the things I like about this current standard is the decks using it have had to up their curve now that they don't have the same tools as they used to. And that does lead to more interesting places, even though this card's still just absurdly good. Really hard to answer. The fact that removal gives it a gives you a treasure means that there's not that many clean answers to it. And it's even though it's a five mana spell, often it won't trade at that much of a mana disadvantage thanks to that ability. Yeah, I mean, Goldspan Dragon is sort of one of the defining cards of standard at this point, and it has been for a while now. In this format, what I would say its big role is, is that um, it it's sort of one of the better ramp cards now, which wasn't always sort of true. You know, when we had uh, access to things like Cultivate, that was sort of a common direction you wanted to go. But honestly, right now, if you want to try to do bigger things in a game, not just kill your opponent, Goldspan Dragon's also a pretty solid route to do that, as we've seen with all of the decks it's appeared with, with Allrun's Epiphany. Um, and let, let's get that one out of the way, Luis. Uh, Allrun's Epiphany, five blue blue for a sorcery. Create two one one blue blue bird creature tokens with flying. Take an extra turn after this one. Exile Allrun's Epiphany, and it's got foretell for blue blue. It just turns out that when the games are about sort of getting these threats that are giving you some kinds of ongoing advantages and you like to have board presence and you like to ride your threats to to victory because it's really hard to kill them. Um, And I think that's sort of a thing we've noticed is how sticky a lot of the threats are. Oh, man, I would love to have my threats for two turns in a row. And so we see almost every deck under the sun sort of contorting itself to either figure out how to play with Allrun's Epiphany or figure out how to beat Allrun's Epiphany. This is the only straight-up spell on the list. Every every other card, as you would expect, is uh, is some kind of permanent, right? And the, the, the reason for that is Auron's Epiphany, yes, it puts two birds into play, but really the reason that it, this, I think I classify this as a threat, is it enhances anything else you have going on by so much while also putting those two 1-1 chump blockers slash attackers into play that... It's kind of like a force multiplier on your Goldspan Dragon, your Renin 7, even your, to some degree, your Hall of the Storm Giants, where if you can line it up such that you go like Epiphany, do something else, next turn, attack with the Hall of the Storm Giants for a ton of damage, and um, you can end up in a spot where Alrun's Epiphany represents a pretty big swing. The thing is, and this is part of the reason Alrun's Epiphany is tough, is it's very hard to answer because it is a spell. The effect happens when it resolves. You can't kill it. You know, you, there, there's no removal spell that works. The only ways to, to answer something like this are counter spells and discard. And the foretell ability actually does quite a bit to fight against discard. You play against a black deck. Sometimes you just want to turn to foretell epiphany. It's not, it's exiled. They can't, no, nothing can touch it when it's in that exile zone. So that leaves really two main solutions counter it or kill them before they can cast out runes epiphany. One of the things, yeah. And, you know, obviously it's fantastic. It does sort of exactly what you want and it beats up on people in the ways that you would expect it does. And, you know, it's no stranger to the airwaves of constructed resources. I, I would say that in terms of what's good against All Runs Epiphany, it's sort of what we haven't talked about, Luis, really. All Runs Epiphany is really, really bad against sort of just like one drop aggro and sort of aggressive strategies, which don't let you develop a board presence. 
And sort of if you don't have a board presence when you sort of cast the epiphany, there's not that much to take advantage of with the extra turn. You're not getting an extra attack step. And so I, I think if I was just trying to be better against all runs epiphany, I would be trying to play much more aggressive strategies like white weenie and not really trying to directly answer the epiphany because the reality is, is the epiphany, like with the foretell ability is one hard to deal with. And also it's not really the point of these decks. It's just sort of the thing that allows them to go over the top of you. And so if you spend too much of your energy trying to fight back against the epiphany, um, that's where you sort of get into trouble. So don't assume, even though Ulrens, sometimes when the best card in the format is something um, like an Aetherworks Marvel, um, like a Fire's Invention, a Wilderness Reclamation, if you really focus on turning off that card, you get a huge advantage. That's not really how the Epiphany plays out. If you can have cards that line up well against it, that's great. But I would in general say if you're trying to be better against Ulrens Epiphany, just try to make your figure out how to make your deck fundamentally line up well against what the Epiphany deck is doing. And there are a wide variety, but that's going to be a more successful route than trying to like stop a time walk card from being good when cast. I mean, a time honored tradition of how do you fight seven drops is kill them before they tap seven mana to cast it. And there's a corollary to that also. Epiphany with nothing in play isn't that strong. The strength of Epiphany is when you have the Goldspan or the Seekers Chariot or the Renin Seven or whatever. So if you can put them under so much pressure or answer the things they played earlier, it also takes a lot of the wind out of the sails. But this card's very good. You're going to play against a lot in Standard. It is not an unbeatable card. And that's and that's sort of the tricky thing about Epiphany, right, Luis, is that um, you, did, you did call it out as a 7-drop, but first of all, the foretellability means it costs 6. This standard is all long on Lotus Petals. And by Lotus Petal, I just mean sort of any any treasure, any artifact which sacks for mana and between things like Prosperous Innkeeper and Magda and Prismari Command. It is just not, and Goldspan Dragon, of course. It is not that hard to get up to the mana with Allruns Epiphany, even when you don't have seven or even six lands in a game. And that's sort of the thing that takes it from being just sort of like a good card that kind of goes over the top in mid-range mirrors to something which applies a lot of pressure and respect from control strategies and aggressive strategies. Well, that brings us to our number one threat in standard. I think uh, maybe the best card in standard. And yeah, if you want to know why people aren't playing with very cheap aggro cards to beat Allrun's Epiphany, we're about to answer the question. That is Isika's Chariot. This is a three and a green for a four, four vehicle crew four. ETBs makes two, two, two cats. Whenever it attacks, it makes a copy of a token you control. The, the best one, of course, being the Renin 7 token. That's what something the green-white deck does with, with Glee. Isika's Chariot is a classic, like, no-downside threat. If you play Isika's Chariot and it resolves, which, you know, it, it won't always resolve, but obviously it most of the time will, if they kill it, like, your opponent's going to jump through hoops to trade for half of Isika's Chariot. Like, one of the best things you can do is go Prismari Command, kill the ch- ch- Chariot, you know, with Destroy Target Artifact, and kill a token. Well... You still have a token in play. And usually it's much, much worse because Prismari Command is actually a pretty weak card outside of that one scenario. So I've been kind of moving away from playing a ton of them. You play a Seeker's Chariot and they're like, all right, you know, cast Medical Massacre or Shadow's Verdict. Okay, well, you still have a Chariot left. So next turn when you play a card, you can almost always attack with just the Chariot right away. And or you're just like, oh, you know, you activate the Chariot. I'll Infernal Grasp it before you attack or Power Word Kill it. Okay, well, you traded for the chariot. I still got the two tokens. The rate on this card is just through the roof. And this is the threat you want if you're playing a green deck. 
like almost every green deck should at the very least consider a Seekers Chariot. The the aggro decks love it as the top of the curve. The mid range decks love it as a you know the 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 card to play before you play your Ren and Seven. And uh, just overall, even like ramp decks, it's a good way to stop aggressive decks from attacking you. It's just a really, really powerful card. And it's just kind of epitomizes the kind of threat you want that like exchanges well against sweepers, exchanges well against individual spot removal, does very well against blockers because the 4-4 is pretty big. And it generates card advantage every time it attacks. So Seekers Chariot is really the name of the game. And the reality is there's not a good answer to it. Like... Let's list some of the ways no. you can exchange well. Disdainful Stroke. Okay, sure. That counters it for two mana versus four. That is good. But a lot of the decks that play Chariot don't have that many high drops, especially now that, like, Gruul, for example, isn't looking at Goldspan Dragon. You have Disdainful Stroke in hand when they play a Reckless Stormseeker off the top. You're going to feel pretty dumb. E- even even more extreme, Anul, right? The one blue mana counter and enchantment or artifact. Great. It counters Ranger Class and Asika's Chariot. What a wonderful card. And I played this card, but I actually just literally lost because I drew an Anul, and they just drew all their creatures, and I had a dead card in my hand the whole time. I already kind of walked through why sweepers and spot removal are so bad. So really, I do, I can't in good faith say there's a good answer to a Seekers Chariot besides going over the top really hard with Goldspan Dragon, Alrun's Epiphany, or Ren and Seven into, you know, big things. But that's going to be tough, and uh, it's really, the bar you have to clear now is why are you not playing a Seekers Chariot? Yeah, the uh, one direction you can look, though this is not going to be easy, is if you can have some sort of evasive aggro strategy. And if there's like, if you know, I haven't really seen like a good like competitive spirits deck, but that is the kind of deck that can line up well against the Seekers Chariot, where you know you don't have to necessarily stop your entire offense just because they drop this card, because cleaning it up is not impossible. You know, we've talked a little bit about it. But it's not the thing you want to be doing. It's not the thing you want to have to plan on doing when you play against this card. Um, I, I, it's worth hedging against this card a fair bit amount right now in your main deck. And, you know, Anola is a great example of that. But figuring out whatever that looks like for your deck and for your strategy, that's kind of what you want to be doing. It's You, you can't just afford to throw in the towel against this card. You don't give in to the fake diversity. A Seekers Chariot is like the thing that the format is about. And if you want to beat, if you want to have the best deck, if you want to have the best chance at standard, you have to sort of know that that's what you're trying to beat. And you have to recognize that it's a lot harder to beat than Epiphany. Epiphany is like great and all, but there are cards that are just actively good against it. And you can do that. If you want to describe any of the counter spells that's actively good against it, it's, it's fine. But like your opponent can... It's not it's not hard to find cards in the standard format that are good against counter spells and things like creature lands are a classic example of that. And so, you know, it's not hopeless. Let's be clear. Like, you, you know, so you think sweeper, you think you think chariot should be banned is what you're saying? Yeah, I do. Do you actually? Yeah. Oh, I was kind of joking. No, I I don't think it's I. Uh, it's the biggest thing that's homogenized. I don't think people – so when I get into band discussions with people, I tend not to, like, look at the card as much as look at the format and just sort of try to get the format into a place where it will be more fun. And it's just like, okay, Asika's Chariot is the best card, and how do you beat it? And it's like, okay, you guys didn't put any cards in standard that are good against Asika's Chariot ban it and move on, and we could just, like, have fun playing with all the new stuff. And it's not like this card hasn't been around for a while. Um, 
if I thought this was actually like a deep and compelling sub game of like, how do you beat a Seekers Chariot? How do you sort of line up your deck well against it? I'd be all about it. I'm not about not having cards be good. You won't hear me talk about banning Goldspan Dragon. And because it's just, there's cards that are good against it. And there's ways you can make your deck good against it. I, I don't know what you're supposed to be doing. It's a Seekers Chariot. I've been playing Magic for a long time. I've been trying to build decks for a long time. And I'm telling you, I'm I'm not I'm not like not not going to play Magic, but I'm throwing in the towel on this one. It's just it's it's like when people like if the null isn't good enough. It's just the, the the answers aren't good enough for it. And like we can move on and just ha- have the format be about other things. And this it's not like this is a new problem. It's not like it's a new idea that standard's been dominated by a Seekers Chariot. It's what was going on before rotation. I'm pretty like amenable to, and I'm not saying like literally ban it this week to be clear because it's too early. Um, but if you're if 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 stuff hasn't changed in a couple weeks from now with the Seekers Chariot, just ban it and move on. It was too good before rotation. It was too dominant for the format. We rotated, and it's still just like not a very fun thing for people to try to answer and deal with and build game plans against. So let's move on. All right, no, that's uh, that's that that is a, that is a good nuanced answer. I. I agree the format would be better without Chariot. I think the threshold for banning is pretty high. Obviously, this is week one. We should wait till like week three before we make the like kind of unhinged ban calls. But <laughs> but if I were to ban, I mean, yeah. would, would the format be more fun? Would there be more cool decks without Chariot? Yes, clearly. Unquestionably true. So to, to kind of... I- yeah, go ahead, Luis. Sorry, I talked a lot there. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, I'm sure that you know you'll 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 have clever things to say in the future as well to tie everything together. <laughs> uh, the kind of deck you're playing will dictate the kind of threats you want. The kind of answers that are in the format will also dictate the kind of threats you want. And there's like some pretty basic stuff, right? The better counter spells are, the cheaper your threats should be. The better spot removal there is and the better sweepers there are, the more you should lean on cards like Planeswalkers and Asika's Chariot. You're often going to have a trade-off between floors and ceilings, right? Briarbridge trackers on the one hand where you almost always get your money, but the payoff isn't huge. Versus cards like, uh, you know, something like Embercleave from the past format would have, or the Great Henge is actually probably the best example. The Great Henge can sometimes be a two mana artifact that draws you five cards on your next turn and gains you two life. And sometimes it's a nine mana card you can literally never cast. So, assuming they're designing good magic cards and not cards like Oko or Asika's Chariot, then the risk versus reward is usually proportionate, where the more of a reward, the more of a risk, the less of a risk, the less of a reward. And on that spectrum, you kind of have to decide what does your deck need. And obviously, there's some nice sweet spots where you have like Reckless Stormseeker where it has a pretty high payoff, but not that much risk. And, you know, there's room for different, you know, different power levels of cards and different levels of risk and reward. Overall, uh, Planeswalkers are a great tool for aggro to beat control. You know, threats that require removal uh, and are resilient to burn are pretty good against aggro. They tend to be because aggro tends to have more toughness-based removal because one of the reasons that aggro decks have a lot more burn spells is because burn goes to the face. So aggro decks can't afford to play seven doom blades because they need cards that are good against creatureless decks or creature light decks. Burn spells, of course, bridge that gap nicely by always having a target, your opponent. So therefore, big toughness creatures can be pretty good against aggro decks. And uh, just... You know, that what removals in the format is really going to dictate what you're doing. Creature lands tend to be very good against control decks and can be pivotal in aggro mirrors, which also tend to be more attrition-y. So 
Hopefully this, uh, you know, this rundown here gave you a lot of tools to build on for standard, but also you could apply a lot of these lessons to other formats. And, you, you know, you look at you look at the fact that modern has lightning bolt remand path to exile. It becomes very clear. You should not be playing cards that cost like four mana and modern unless they're really, really strong or somehow resilient to the, to the common answers in the format. And if you look at the aggro decks in modern, they play all one and two mana creatures as a result. So. Yeah, I mean, to me, this episode was a lot about sort of showing you hypotheses. Like, oh, that's that's all we're doing. We're throwing out a theory for for a lot of this stuff about, like, what this stuff is good against, what it's bad against. And then you actually play test if you're trying to get better and trying to improve your deck and you see if it's true or not. And if you have good reasons and good theories, it'll be true more often than not, but you won't be 100%. There might be something that's really good against the Seekers Chariot that I'm just missing. I'm looking at it. I've thought it through it about, so I've thought about it a bunch and it's not going to surprise me if it continues to be the thing that is entirely shaping the format and doesn't give people a lot of direction for how to be better against it. I don't like banning cards very much either, but I like formats that feel like it's kind of aimless for people to improve against things um, even less. And I know a lot of people were sort of very anti Embercleave and I was never as against Embercleave as other people because it was just like, well, if you kill the thing in response, it's a big blowout. And I, I love those big blowout moments in Magic, Luis. I know you do too, where somebody's constructed a game plan and you're playing with the right card in the right moment and use it the right way, and all of a sudden you get to just turn their plants into dust. And when, you, when you're picking out threats, you want the least chance of that happening, and when you're trying to, uh, to be better against threats, you, uh, you want to watch their plans go up in smoke. And that's, uh, that's, that's to me, that's what this episode's been all about, right? Yeah, and, and uh, uh, let us know if the it, you know if this was useful or if if you have any questions you want to elaborate on that. You can always find us at LSV or at Abext or on the Constructed Resources Discord. Uh, I'm working on a, a CR homepage uh, that that'll be found at uh, channelfireball.com/cr, but that's not that's not built yet. I talked to our web dev team because I want some place to point people. But you know what? If you if you want to hop on the Discord, I'll uh, include it in the show notes for real this time. And uh, you, can, you, can, you can also just always ask me on Twitter for it. I'll, I'll, I'll get it over to you as soon as I see it. So I'm at LSV, of course, there. And uh, as always, thanks to our sponsors, uh, Channel Fireball. You can go to mtglasvegas.com to check out the new event coming in November uh, in Las Vegas, a live magic event, a lot of awesome stuff there. So definitely check that out. And of course, FTX, uh, the uh, you know trusted and regulated cryptocurrency platform that uh, really is sponsoring a lot of cool stuff. You know, they 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 picked up LR, they picked up CR, they actually just picked up the Mercedes Racing Team. So they they got they got some cool stuff uh, coming there. And uh, you can go to FTX.us if you're in the US or FTX.com if you're not. And a lot of resources there if you want to learn more about crypto or if you want to start trading in it. So once again, uh, those are our sponsors. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. All right, Luis, before we go, the the next Matrix movie is coming out this year, and The Matrix is probably my favorite film of all time. So I thought we'd go to a little road down memory lane here, and I'm going to tell everybody sort of my five favorite um quotes slash uh, back and forth like dialogues from the matrix and what better place to start than number five it's a line from the very beginning of the movie when the agents are closing in on trinity and the police lieutenant says i think we can handle one little girl i sent two units they're bringing her down now and agent smith just replies no lieutenant your men are already dead (laughs) uh next number four um from the Oracle, one of my favorite characters in the Matrix, and she's pointing to a line 
uh, a thing hanging in her kitchen and she says, it's Latin. It means know thyself. I want to tell you a little secret. Being the one is just like being in love. No one needs to tell you you're in love. You just know it through and through. Uh, let's go to number three. Uh, a scene from a quote from just earlier in the movie when Neo's first arrived to see the Oracle and he meets the psychics and the kids waiting to see the Oracle. The spoon boy, do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. There is no spoon. Then you'll see that it is not the spoon that bends. It is only yourself. I love that one. God, the Matrix uh, is so good. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's on HBO Max for free. And uh, you go check it out. Um, we got two more to get to. Love a good Morpheus quote. Our next two are going to be from the man himself, Lawrence Fishburne, from the training scene with him and Neo after he sort of punched uh, Neo down. And Morpheus goes, how did I beat you, Neo? You, you're too fast. Morpheus says, do you believe that my being stronger or faster has anything to do with my muscles in this place? Do you think that's air you're breathing now? And yeah, I mean, the Matrix, I mean, what, the, the thing that makes the Matrix the Matrix is just sort of the wonder and sense of like what it does to make you look around the world and be like, I don't really even know what's going on. I guess I'm just kind of taking it on faith that like I know what's going on. And uh, and sort of and then my number one favorite quote from The Matrix, the one that I, I think has really stuck with me more than anything else. Well, besides Keanu Reeves just going, whoa, or I know Kung Fu. Maybe that's some other people's favorites. I know Kung Fu is uh, is, uh, is a pretty classic one, but it's for Morpheus. Neo, sooner or later, you're going to realize, just as I did, that there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. Luisa, uh, any any favorite Matrix moments you want to throw out to the listener before we sign off for the night? Uh, I don't remember the exact quote, so you, you're going to have to maybe help you yeah. with this one here. But uh, it's when uh, Agent Smith is interrogating Neo and he's like, Mr. Anderson, how are you going to make a phone call if you have no mouth or something like that? Like, <laughs> I always found that. How useful is a phone call if you're not able to speak? Yeah, that one's good. And then also, do you hear that? That's the sound of crushing inevitability as the train's coming and he's got him in the headlock. So just, just wow. Really, so really we've good. learned that Luis really identifies with Agent Smith. We're really <laughs> learning a lot. It's mostly when I'm like streaming and I, I'm Agent Smith and my opponent's Neo and, and, and I, they can hear the crushing sound of inevitability coming. Oh, I thought you were going to say, because you're Agent Smith and you're streaming and Twitch chat is Neo. And when you hit the mute button or the block button, they no longer are able to speak. <laughs> Something like that. All right. So we'll see you inside the Matrix, everyone. Till next time. Mm -hmm.